Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. I thought the last time that I was studying about the topic of heaven and the previous times to that that I got excited, but there's just so much that we don't know and there's so much in scripture that gives us hints and clues, but it's just, it's exhilarating to actually look through the Bible and, and kind of just uncover all of this, this amazing language and how it speaks of heaven. And so far we've kind of talked about um, why it's important for us to even be thinking about or learning about heaven. We, we've, we've uncovered this idea that unless we have clarity about the future, it'll be really hard for us to have clarity in the present. That Jesus said just before he went to the cross that it was the joy set before him that allowed him to actually steward that season and endure the cross. He had clarity about what was coming next. And that clarity filled him with hope and joy. That clarity gave him purpose. And that clarity actually was like a slingshot for him, propelling him through the purposes and plans of God in his life. We need that clarity today, that hope today. There's so many things we don't know about heaven, but the Bible says a lot more than we give it credit for. If you're like me, maybe you grew up and you just uh, grew up thinking that everything that is in the Bible is just allegory or it's just, uh, you know, metaphors and word pictures. But as we're going to talk about even in the next couple of weeks, as the Bible talks about the future new heaven and new earth, that, yeah, there's a lot of metaphor and there's a lot of word picture and there's a lot of stuff we just don't totally know. But there's a lot of things that I think we could take at face value. And so we're going to examine some of those today. We looked last week at the present heaven. And so maybe this was a new thought for you. We discussed last week the reality that the present heaven is not the eternal heaven. The present heaven is not where we will go for eternity to be with God. The present heaven is a place that he receives us now. But the whole thrust of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New, the predominant prevailing thrust is God's plan to come back down to earth, to recreate the heavens and the earth, and for us to reign with Christ on the earth. That's the whole thrust of the New Testament. The New Testament actually says very little about the present heaven because it wasn't what they were putting their hope in. It wasn't what their trust was in. Their trust was in God's eternal plan to come back down to this earth and recreate it and refashion it to finish what he started. And we're going to look today and examine this new heaven and new earth and, and what the Bible does say about it. Now, for the last couple of weeks... It hasn't worked out super well, but I've been trying to teach you about what the Bible says the word new means. So I'm going to try it for the third time. I checked before, 
and I swear it's in there. So we're going to look at what the Bible says new means, because when Jesus says at the renewal of all things, when Revelation 21.1 says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, it's, under, it's important for us to understand what that word new actually means in the original Greek. The Greek word for that is koinos. We're going to put it up here. And if it's not up here, then I quit. I resign officially. So Antonio, there we go. Finally, after three weeks. Every one of those times, it was my fault, not them back there. But so this word new, when, when the Bible talks about God recreating a new heavens and a new earth, it's not talking about the annihilation of what is. It's not talking about God giving up on what he's done and starting completely over. It's talking about a renewal and a refreshing, a restoration of what was. It's actually specifically uses language that talks about new in time, not in form. That it'll be new again, but not new as in it has not existed in that way previously. And so we don't know exactly how God is going to do this. We don't know all of the nuanced details. But as we have been discussing for the last few weeks, God has not abandoned his plan for the earth, for the cosmos. And he certainly hasn't abandoned his plan for us. We're going to look today at what the Bible says about the new earth and specifically about what our resurrection bodies are will be like, but I just want to preface that again with a few verses, Matthew 19, 28, if you have your Bibles with you. In the New Testament, we can read it. So this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. They're gearing up for basically the last lap in his ministry life. And Peter says in verse 27, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have been my followers, will also sit on 12 thrones. That's that word koinos. I want to read with you 2 Peter 3.13. Flip to the right. Number of books. 2 Peter 3.13 says this, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. Same Greek root word, koinos. Revelation 21.1, the last book of the Bible, says this, then I saw a new heaven and new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Same word, new. Let's flip to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, says this, As surely as my new heavens and earth will remain, so will you always be my people. So Jesus' heart and God's heart is to renew and restore. And we see this all through the scripture. God uses words like renewal and restoration, redeeming, restoring, recreating. He uses words like that to, to fashion for us an understanding of how he works. He uses words like resurrection and return and recovery. All of these words with the re-prefix on it. 
to get us to understand that his heart is not just to obliterate what he's done and what he's created. His heart is to refashion it and restore it carefully and meticulously to its original design. I want you to turn with me to Romans 8, 19 to 22. Today is going to be a lot of teaching. So those cards that you have that were on the seat back, the backside is blank. I want to encourage you to take notes. I'm going to be uh, just firing through a whole bunch of stuff today. So it's going to feel more like a, a bit of a teaching time than necessarily preaching. And I hope you're okay with that. If not, it's too late anyway. So Romans 8, 19 to 22. For all creation, that word all literally means all, is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against his will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Paul, through this chapter and through different parts of Romans and, and 1 Corinthians, makes a great point and goes to great lengths to emphasize that what happened in the Garden of Eden when man sinned and fell out of relationship with God that sin didn't just affect Adam and Eve, and that sin didn't just affect a localized geographic area called the Garden of Eden. It affected the whole cosmos. What they did placed the whole cosmos, every planet and solar system, every galaxy, every proton star, neutron star, all of that stuff from bio, not biology, physics, and whatever those classes are. Clearly, I skipped a few of them. All of those things have been placed under the curse and they're all groaning for the day when that curse is lifted, when they are redeemed and restored back to their original design and creation. So this thing that happened on the earth wasn't just localized to the earth, that everything God had made had been placed under this curse and needed a redeemer and a savior someone to come and break the curse so that things could be restored and renewed. Ephesians 1 verse 10 says it this way. Ephesians 1.10 says, and this is the plan. This is God's plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. God's heart and his plan is to renew everything. If you are taking notes, the first point that you can jot down is that God has not abandoned his plan for this world or for humanity. He hasn't. It's a big fat lie of the enemy to believe that God is so thoroughly unequipped to deal with the effects of sin that he's got to fully start over. It's actually a lie of the devil to believe this idea that sin has so corrupted and so devastated God's creation that he has no other recourse but to obliterate it and start fresh. If he wanted to do that, he would have done it already. 
He could have done it that moment, that instant, but he's not done with us. He's not done with his creation. He's not done with that thing that he called very good. He's not done with his people that he's made in his image. We're image-bearing sons and daughters, men and women of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's not finished with us. So we have to actually reject that lie that we've gone too far that things have gone so sour and that they're so corrupt and they're so broken that there's no repair. God always, always is able to restore and redeem and renew. Genesis 2, verse 7. We're going to hop right to the beginning of the Bible. Actually, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 first. This is the story of how God made us. Then God said, and this is after he's created everything else, let us make human beings in our image. It's pluralized to represent the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why it's our. Let us make man to be beings in our image, to be like us. They will reign over the earth fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along. Then God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground. They're getting a lot of airtime, those small animals. Everything that has life. Those are some of the most annoying ones, like the dead mouse that I found in our window well yesterday. Anyway, I wonder where he is today. I'm not sure. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. Two verse seven says this. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed a breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. I want to leave you with this thought. We'll come back to this after. I want to leave you with this thought in a perfect way without the stain and the the consequence of sin ever touching it yet. God made us from the earth and he made us for the earth. Never at any point were we made for something other than the earth. God didn't make us to be disembodied spirits that are just floating aimlessly through the cosmos. Right from the start, in perfect creation, God made us from the dust of the earth and for the earth. He created a place specifically to partner with him, to rule and to reign. You and I have been made from the earth and we're for the earth. And God has never abandoned this purpose for us. I love this quote from John Eldridge and Randy Alcorn. We can only hope for what we desire and we can only desire what we can imagine. So often you hear people say, well, we can't imagine what heaven's like. We 
We can't imagine it, so if we can't imagine it, we can't hope for it, or we can't desire it. We can't desire something we can't even picture in our mind. Think of, you know, the places on this earth that you'd love to go that you've seen images of, but you've never been to. Think of that when you see these images, these, these beautiful images, and how something in you, something deep inside you longs to actually see fully in person, face to face. And you long for it and desire for it and hope for it because you can picture it and imagine it. I believe that, that God gives us just enough of a glimpse through his word to give us something that we can imagine, something that we can cling to, a hope that is an anchor for our soul. And if he's made us for the earth and by the earth, then he said, you have what you need to imagine to let your mind run wild, run wild in imagining the goodness of what I'm going to do. Have you ever thought about this? I was, I've been thinking about this a lot. Sometimes we feel guilty. I don't know why, but we feel guilty for using our imagination to picture heaven, like somehow that, that in some way that's wrong or unspiritual. But if God is as good as he says he is and He's as creative as we believe he is and glorious as we believe, believe he is. Will, will heaven somehow be a diminished existence to the one you're living on on earth? Really? Like, do you think that when you die, it gets worse, even if it's called heaven? No, but we walk around with this belief and it's, I think it's that in influence from Plato and, and Christoplatonism that says, you know, what's earthly and what's material is wrong and sinful and, and somehow we need to shed the material and become spiritual. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's what Plato taught, but it's not what the Bible teaches. The whole Bible is pointing us back to this material existence on a material created heaven and earth. And if God is anything like I believe he is, then he's going to literally explode our minds with glory when we see what he does. This morning, I was driving, as I do, along the parkway for my morning drive, and it was the nicest sunrise so far this year that I've seen. There's been some okay ones, but today was just stunning, and I stopped and I took a few pictures of it, and I just stood there, and I was like, wow, God, I'm sorry for believing that what's awaiting me in the life to come is somehow going to be less than this. It's somehow going to be less glorious, less amazing for me to look at, less amazing for me to ponder. God, I'm sorry for diminishing, for reducing what you have planned for me to something that's less than what I believe it'll be. There's one more image there that was just, it was so beautiful. I really believe that, that God wants to re-spark our curiosity and imagination. He wants to reset this hope in us for something so glorious and so captivating and so brilliant and so majestic. 
that all of our lofty thoughts today about what's beautiful will just pale in comparison. I've watched with my own eyes the sunrise over Mount Everest, and it was stunning and beautiful. But I'm sure, I'm convinced that it is nothing compared to what will happen when God recreates the earth in perfection, removed and released from the curse of sin and death. And that same sun rises over the mountains. I'm sure it'll be a million times more glorious to behold. Why would God do anything less? Why would he prepare anything less for you and I? He wouldn't. And so I believe it's actually okay for us to use our imagination So last week we talked about the intermediate heaven, the present heaven. We're going to talk about the future heaven today. These are some of the ways that the Bible describes heaven. It describes heaven like a city. It characterizes it like a city. Hebrews 11.10. I'm not going to read all of these. Hebrews 11.16. 13 verse 14, and again, if we want to imagine a city, we can imagine what a city's like because we walk through them, we experience them. Why would the Bible use language that we can understand only to lead us to this belief that it's otherworldly and that we can't comprehend or conceive it? So it it talks about heaven and characterizes it like a city, a place of culture, community, buildings, people, structure, tangibleness. That's not a word, but it sounded good. It talks about heaven as a country. Hebrews eleven sixteen. it says that Abraham longed for the new country that God was preparing for him. Well, we know what a country is like. It's a territory, a geographic area. It's got government and rulers and authority and hierarchy. It's got diversity and community. It's got a shared identity. Do you honestly believe that God is just going to obliterate all of that? That we're just going to be this homogeneous blob of nothingness? Nothing unique to characterize us? Nothing independent? Do you honestly believe, I I believe this strongly, that if you believe that God demolishes all hierarchy, you don't actually know what the kingdom of God is about. God's kingdom is established on hierarchy. Sin has corrupted it and distorted it and perverted it. But God's kingdom is established on hierarchy and authority. And when it's working in perfect unity, in submission and glorious goodness, it's powerful. But sin has distorted it and twisted it and used hierarchy to harm and to hurt and to malign the truth of who God is. It characterizes his new creation as the earth. With geography, people, nations, rulers, wildlife, ecology, Revelation 21 and 22. I want to read to you Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. This is a picture. Isaiah chapter 60 is as well, if you want to jot that down for your own reference, the whole chapter, Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Isaiah is speaking prophetically now, which means he's kind of speaking, looking into the future. In uh, verse 17, look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. 
Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation, and look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people, and the sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they've lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. In those days, people will live I just want you to pay attention to this. In those days, the people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike in the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards, for my people will live as long as trees, and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed in misfortune, for they are people blessed by the Lord, and their children too will be blessed. I will answer them before they even call to me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust. They still get the bad deal. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. I want to ask you this question. If you believe that's unbelievable and that it's just uh, allegory and that it's just poetic language, several chapters earlier, this same writer, Isaiah, prophesied about the torture and death of the Messiah. He went into great and specific, accurate detail, which was fulfilled to the T in reality. So if he did that for Jesus, don't you think that even a fraction of this could be an actual literal reality that God has for us? Why is it always just pie in the sky when we think about what's coming next? Could the Bible actually be speaking to us and giving us clues for what we can expect? I believe that the answer is yes. I believe it is yes. So I want to leave you with some observations from Isaiah 65, Isaiah 60, Revelation 21 and 22. I'm not going to read all of those texts because we don't have time. But these are observations that I just jotted down in reference to all of those scriptures that talk about the future heaven. So not the present heaven, but the future heaven when we'll reign for eternity with Christ on the earth. Number one, renewal is universal in its scope that God is gonna restore all of his creation, the whole cosmos, all of humanity. Number two, Jerusalem is a specific place that's mentioned. I love how it goes into detail about the, the stones that are there and the gemstones that are there. These, these stones that are hard, they're, they're much harder surfaces and compounds than we can even imagine. And the Bible goes into detail to describe them. I believe that one of the reasons is because he wants us to get the point that it's material. It's not just fantasy or allegory. Number three, there are nations represented. Number four, people will come from afar to Jerusalem. Number five, there are kings, hierarchy, order, and authority. Just think about that for a minute. Number six, there are men and women. There are genders in heaven. When we die, we don't become um, autonomous, robotic, you know, sex-neutral beings. We don't become angels when we die either. Angels are their own specific created being by God. 
So we don't become angels. They're not to be worshipped. They're not to be glorified. They're a created being by God. And we're human. We're different. So when we die, we don't become this weird sort of hybrid. We're not Michael Landon in, you know, that amazing series from 20 years ago. What was it, A Touch of Heaven? What was it called again? Highway to Heaven, right. You can just, can't you picture that intro of that with the beautiful clouds and him kind of floating around and all that stuff? Like, you still watch it, amazing. Bless your heart. (laughs) Um, Number seven, there are merchants, there's commerce, there's entrepreneurialism there. Number eight, there's wealth. Number nine, there's homes, ships, technology, design, engineering, infrastructure. It's all talked about. There are animals, number 10. Number 11, there's ownership. I love how it says that the people will possess their land and be blessed for the fruit of their work on their land. Where did we come up with this idea that heaven is this sort of socialist utopia? It's not. It's not. At least that's not how the Bible describes it. Number 12, there's no need for sun or moon. I love this. This is one of the the most classic, poorly interpreted verses of the Bible. I underline that, and you should too. Specifically, Isaiah says there's no need for the sun or moon. He doesn't say they won't exist. He says the glory of God will literally um, shine brighter than them, but he doesn't say they don't exist. If God is recreating the cosmos, then in some fashion, he's recreating all of these other planets and solar systems and galaxies and all of these things. And of course, we don't know exactly what it looks like. We don't have a blueprint for the specific detail. But it doesn't say that they won't exist. It says we just won't need it in the same way that we do now. Because God's glory will shine brighter. Number 13 There's peace and joy, there's no weeping, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering. In the future heaven that God has planned for us. Point number three, if you want to write this down, I I want you to ponder this, because this may be like just a mind grenade for you. We can imagine heaven. We can. And I believe that God so desperately wants to set our hearts and our thoughts on him and the glory that is awaiting us. He's given us clues and glimpses of it here on earth. His heart is not to bring you into a frightening and unfamiliar place that is completely void of anything you recognize or understand or know. His heart is to bring you to a place and to something that You can imagine. I'm going to continue on. We're going to gloss over this. Of course, we don't know all of the answers to many of these things, but the central theology of the New Testament wasn't just the death of Jesus. It was his bodily resurrection. The whole gospel. Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, then we're wasting our time. We're completely wasting our time. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, if there's no bodily resurrection, then we've lost. God has lost 
and we're all doomed. The physical resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of our hope. And Jesus is the prototype of what we can expect. So let's just look at a couple things. I want you to write these verse references down. John 20 and 21. So John goes into the most detail in the New Testament, in the Gospels, of describing uh, resurrection events after the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to cover just a few points from here. The disciples saw and touched the wounds of Jesus. Not only did they see them in this metaphoric sense or this spiritual sense, they actually saw and touched them. Jesus actually said, uh, in, in Luke, he said, look, touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a vapor. I'm not an apparition. You can touch me. They recognized and saw the wounds on his hands and his feet and in his side. Number two, Jesus ate food with them. John 21, 12 and 14. He actually sat down and he ate a meal with them. He literally said a ghost can't eat a meal. Where does it go? But I'm demonstrating to you the hope we have is in a bodily resurrection. Jesus spoke. He walked. He didn't just float around like Casper. He walked. There was continuity. We've talked about this. There was continuity of time and relationship. When Jesus was resurrected, he didn't just forget about everything that had happened or the people he knew. And also they recognized him. Sometimes it took a little jogging because they couldn't believe it. They couldn't get their mind around somebody rising from the dead. They'd seen him raise Lazarus, but they had no concept or no frame of reference to believe or understand what would actually happen. And so when he showed up, it wasn't that they were totally oblivious because he looked like Fred instead of Jesus. They were actually shocked that he was there, but they recognized him. He talked with them. He shared with them. He connected with them. There was continuity. We talked about that all last week. That when we go to this heaven that God has planned for us, we don't become different people. There's continuity between this life and next life. And next week, we're going to talk about why that's so important for us here and now. Jesus had special powers too. Incredible powers. And if you don't believe the example of Jesus, I want us to go right back to Genesis again. I just want you to consider a couple observations about God's creation when he created Adam and Eve. Specifically, he created them fully human, from the dust, for the earth. But he asked him, this single man and woman, to literally govern and manage the earth. I was doing yard work yesterday in my backyard. And after about two hours, I just was exhausted. I was tired, my back was sore. I clearly didn't wear sunscreen. I just, for a couple of hours, I, could, I didn't even finish my yard yesterday. Part of that was because I left it from the fall, but that's another story for another day. But God asked this man to manage the earth. Do you know and realize that it said that he put in Eden a garden? They're two different things. 
And that he gave men this job to, to have dominion over the earth, to rule the fish of the sea and to the birds of the air and the wildlife and the vegetation. I believe that that's a clue for us, that our capacity is so limited because of sin. But Adam would have had this superior strength and ability, this stamina that we could only dream of today to govern the earth in partnership with God. Think about also his mental capacity. God charged him with naming every animal. Just try going through the dictionary, looking up all the animals and remembering a fraction of them. I believe that God created man with these uh, superior strengths and abilities, uh, the ability to intellectually comprehend and, and to connect with him that what we experience today is nothing compared to how he made man originally before sin came in and cursed us and robbed us. I love what it says in general, uh, Genesis 3.19, that it was as a result of sin, get this, God says, as a result of sin, you'll experience exhaustion in your work. It's because of sin that we get tired and worn out. Again, we don't know how all of this works, but think of this picture, this strong and powerful man and woman governing the earth, walking in authority and power, able to connect with God unfettered, able to process things and think through things, have emotional intelligence, intellect and IQ, the ability to fulfill the plans in the heart of God over and over and over without growing weary or tired or becoming burdened and overdone. God's heart is to restore this to us. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't know, I, I don't like my job. I don't like the sounds of being me for an eternity. I don't want to be an accountant forever. I don't want to be, you know, whatever. Think of the job. Our job doesn't define the DNA that God has put in us, the vision and the calling that he's put in our life. What you do vocationally may have nothing to do with what God has wired you to do in partnership with him for eternity. And he says that he'll strengthen you, he'll empower you, and he'll give you the capacity to rule and reign on the earth with him. So there's a few questions I want to cover just before we close. And again, I'm not, we're not, we don't know these things definitively. There's been scholars over centuries that have debated some of these things. But just a couple basic questions. How old will we be in heaven? If we're going to live for eternity, it's a logical question. It's an interesting thing to think about. Augustine and a lot of the philosophers in the Middle Ages believed that we will be roughly 30 years old or the age that Jesus was when he died. Some other scholars believe that our DNA kind of comes into its peak performance around our mid-20s to 30s somewhere in there, and of course, we don't actually really know, and it doesn't even really matter fully. But one of the things I want you to consider, because I believe that this fits with the character and the goodness of God. The Bible talks about children being in heaven. I, I just want to lay this out there for you. There's no, I'm not going based on any empirical evidence from the Bible, but I feel like this fits with the character and the heart of God. 
What if those kids that the Bible talks about are the kids that have been lost to you and your family and your loved ones far too early? What if God, wouldn't it just be like God to say, I'm going to give you back those years that you were taken and stolen? Wouldn't it just be like God to be so good to say, not only are you going to get a chance to continue on for eternity, but it's going to happen in my perfect creation. Wouldn't it just be so like God to restore our brokenness and our hurt and our pain in such a glorious way? I don't know for sure, but to me that sounds like the character and the nature of God. It sounds like the kind of God who loves us and sent his son to die for us. Who is a God who's interested in restoring and redeeming, not in erasing and destroying. We don't know how old we'll be. But I believe that it won't matter for one and two. We'll be in a place, in a period of perfection with him. Number two, are we angels? No, we're not. We already talked about that. Are there sexes? Yes, there are. Jesus came back. He was a man. He wasn't androgynous. Talks about men and women before the fall and after. What will our bodies be like? Hmm. I don't know if we'll be like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Part of me wishes, like 70s Arnold Schwarzenegger, not like now, but like pumping iron Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, I don't know. We don't know what our bodies will be like, but they'll be perfect and they'll be right and they'll be us. They'll be filled with capacity. Everything we need will be there. We won't struggle or strive. We won't be insecure and defensive. We won't be wishing for something else. We'll be us, perfect, in the presence of God for eternity. Why don't you stand with me as we close this morning? I want to leave this thought with you. We're going to circle back to this thought that we started with. Next week, we're actually going to, to uncover this idea. Like, what will we do? So if you're not musical and you have trouble making it through, you know, 10 minutes of worship or 20 minutes of worship once a week, the thought of an eternity singing is probably dreadful to you. It probably is. Let's just be honest with it. Let's just be honest with it. And yes, there will be worship happening in heaven, but the Bible actually talks a lot about other things that we'll be doing. Why does it talk about people coming from the ends of the earth to worship him? Why does it talk about people in commerce and trade and working with their hands and doing all of these things? I, I, I believe that God's picture of what is coming is so much more glorious and great than we give it credit for. Currently, not all of the angels stand in his presence 24 hours a day. We've read about the ones that do. But he sends Gabriel out on assignments, Michael out on assignments. Don't be discouraged by that. See, God has a perfect plan for you and I. And I want you to leave with this thought that we started with. That God isn't finished with you. He hasn't given up on your life. He hasn't given up on my life. He hasn't given up on his creation. He hasn't lost to the devil. There's nothing that you've done, no place you've gone, no thing you've thought, nothing that you've done is, 
that is outside of the reach of his redemptive goodness and power and grace. There's nothing that he wouldn't do for you or I to bring us back into relationship with him. He's not done. He's not done with you. He's not done with me. And he's not done with his creation. So we can walk out of here having great hope today. Great hope that actually his heart is to restore and make all things new. If you're here today and you feel like you've crossed the Rubicon, so to speak, you feel like you've crossed the line and you've gone too far, too far into sin, too far into dysfunction, too far into brokenness, you feel like you've rejected God one too many times, I have news for you. The glorious teaching of heaven in the Bible says otherwise, that God's not finished. He's not done with you. His heart is to restore and renew. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the specific things that God, I believe, is going to call us to do in partnership with him. So let's pray. Jesus, we just confess right now that we do not have a full and clear picture of what is awaiting us for an eternity with you. But God, we're just, we're, we're sorry. We repent for believing the lie that it's somehow less than ideal. We repent for believing the lie, God, that your heart is to strip us of our relational connections with each other, that your heart is to um, remove us from what gives us most life and brings us most joy. Father, we repent for diminishing our view of the heaven that you are going to walk with us for eternity in, this earth that we will live on with you in glory. Give us a bigger picture this week, Holy Spirit, a bigger hope and a bigger joy. Father, I pray this morning for those who are here, who are walking through like a valley of the shadow of death. I pray for those who feel like they're on their last rung and they've got no energy left, no strength left, no fight left, no patience left, no perseverance left, no grace left, no forgiveness left. Father, I pray that you would remind them that you're not done. And you will give us the strength we need for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. That you've given us everything we need for life and godliness today. Jesus, we take you at your word and we trust you. Father, we fix our eyes on you. For the joy set before Jesus is the joy and the hope that we too get to be a part of if we know him. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.